0: everybody. It's Larry Kotlikoff back with Economics Matters, the podcast. I'm here with Cliff Winston. He's probably our leading authority in our country on infrastructure. And I wanted to uh, discuss that because I think it's a very important thing for everybody uh, to understand what's going on, uh, especially in this uh, political climate. Uh, Cliff um, is a... uh, He's currently a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution. He's been at Brookings for a long time, since 84. So that uh, in my calculation is 40 years. And uh, uh, he's an applied microeconomist. He specializes in um, industrial organization, regulation and transportation. He's co-editor of the annual microeconomics edition of the Brookings papers on economic activity uh, prior to uh, working at Brookings. He was an associate professor at MIT in uh, their department of civil engineering. He's the author of 17 books. Uh, he's got a brand new book. Um, and uh, one of them is, well, this, he's got one that's called basically "Let's first shoot the lawyers. But uh, the latest book is called revitalizing a nation. It's together, it's joint with um, Cliff, well, it's with you, Cliff Winston and uh, Gia John and Associates, and uh, he's published extensively in top economics journals: American Economic Review, Econometrica, Review of Economics and Statistics, uh, the Bell Journal of Economics, Rand Journal of Economics. So, for people that are um, familiar with economics journals, these are like the this is like publishing in Science or Nature in. If you're a scientist, uh, these are the top journals in economics. Not not all of them, but um, basically uh, the very top uh, journals. And, and uh, Cliff has also um, got a very fine education under the belt. He uh, got an, his uh, undergraduate degree at Berkeley, and then he got an, a master's degree at the London School of Economics, and then he got a PhD at Berkeley in economics in 1979. So, Cliff, welcome uh, to uh, Economics Matters. It's great to be back with you.
1: Great to be
0: talking with you. So, Cliff, I wanted to start out with uh, you're giving us kind of an overview of of um, the state of infrastructure in this country. You know, we have a lot of politicians passing some bills here and there where there's a infrastructure bill that was passed under President Biden. It was not. It wasn't an infrastructure bill that was passed under President Trump, as I understand it. Even though there was a lot of attempts, but uh, President Biden succeeded in having a bipartisan bill. There was a bipartisan uh, Inflation Reduction Act IRA bill that um, has infrastructure components. And I guess uh, my questions are: Well, would be uh, you know, uh, what's the state of infrastructure? Uh, We've heard from civil engineers, uh, reporting that it's just terrible. Uh, how much do these bills add to infrastructure investment as opposed to just replace what we were doing? Are they really a big deal about nothing? Because that's typically my sense of what politicians do here, which is that they pass a bill for five or 10 years, then it runs out and then they renew it. And then they describe it as a brand new bill. And maybe it's as a share of GDP smaller than it was than we were spending even uh, before. So let's kind of focus on those two questions, and then I have other kind of broad questions about what the structure of these two bills are, or how they how would they change the nature of infrastructure for the better for the worse, and uh, in particular, uh, how does the how do these bills really matter to to our trying to uh, reduce emissions and to combat uh, from our side in the U.S. Uh, climate change, and we're still probably the second largest emitter of, uh, of uh, carbon dioxide in the, in the world. Anyway, take it away. Okay,
1: so there, there was uh, your first question was the state of infrastructure. What is the state of infrastructure? So probably anyone watching this or follows at all has their knowledge, if you will, on the state of the infrastructure from engineers, who you know grade the infrastructure and give it a letter grade, usually a low one. Um, now, this is a key part to much of what I'm going to say, in that engineers have dominated a lot of the public discussion and thinking about our infrastructure. You know, you don't hear economists grading infrastructure, right? You don't really hear economists all that much in the forefront of what to do about it so what i'm really talking about is a mentality toward infrastructure that has existed in this country pretty much uh, since it's 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 uh founding and and that is the engineering mentality of building of spending that that's how we think about infrastructure now you know, when the country began, sure, we didn't have anything. So, Mm -hmm. you know, it, it made sense to start building and constructing, but, you know, now we have much of the system is built. No one denies that. No one is talking about, oh, we have to build a whole new interstate highway system. System is largely built. So the real question is, how about making the most efficient use of what we have? as opposed to simply thinking spending, spending, spending. Let's think about efficiency and how can we do that? Once we start having that perspective and get away from not only spending, but just a lot of the inefficiencies that people observe about infrastructure, congestion, pavement damage, sometimes safety issues, what have you, that then pushes engineering out, puts economics in. And that's really the thrust of a lot of what I do and what transportation economists do to think in terms of efficiency, which does not call for massive spending, all right, but to use the basic principles of economics and weave efficient pricing with efficient investment. That is, you really can't think about investment until you get the prices right. So, right. Example yeah. so be that, a, that's the basic theme of, of really how I'll right. think about it.
0: So an example might be, if you have, have a road and it's being, uh, deteriorated, uh, undermined by super heavy trucks, uh, uh, and then maybe they're all driving at the same time. If you put on, uh, pricing that says that, uh, uh, if you put on extra weight, you have to pay extra uh, extra fees uh, because there's also railroads that you can, you can use. It might be for shipping the the products, uh, do less damage to the to the highways, and then we don't have to be constantly repairing them. So here, I mean, when people say when you say that um, we have safety issues, people immediately say, "Well, we have to fix those." But what you're saying is we're causing the safety issues by the way we're using the infrastructure. So we have to be not just fixing things, but also changing the way we use things so that we don't have to fix them again right away. Now, how, how bad just generally speaking, you know, if you didn't uh, do, if we just think about the, at, at this point in time, I've seen reports by uh, engineers suggesting that like half of the U.S. infrastructure is kaput. It's really in terrible shape. Uh, it needs to be fixed. Is it? Are things, in terms of safety, just terrible right now, or are they just, or the engineers just looking for jobs? Well, we're,
1: remember, we're we're talking about safety now. We have to be specific, right? You know, for the most part, you know, we're not going to have sort of a. It's not like airplanes when they crash. You know, that's a major safety issue in the country. You're, you're not going to get you know major safety concerns from going over a pothole. So, you know, most of the road, to the extent that they're not in great condition, it's potholes. Where you have concerns about safety, it's on bridges. And if you have what is known as catastrophic failure, you know, the bridge collapses and there are a bunch of cars on it, you know, yeah, that's that's a scary thing. Now, fortunately, we don't have that too often. That's very rare. And... At the same time i think what engineers are calling attention to is when they inspect bridges they'll see cracks and they'll say oh you know catastrophic failure is right around the corner and that's sort of the kind of thing they're talking about now look you observe as much as i do how many bridge collapses we have not too many so it's not quote that bad but at the same time it, it, it wouldn't be a bad idea in the same way we think about pricing to deal with congestion and pavement damage, to start thinking about pricing in terms of bridge damage. And then again, the idea is to coordinate that then with investment. So we don't necessarily have to go out and spend a fortune uh, fortifying bridges, right? You can cut down on that if you have pricing, which discourages the kind of truck combinations and weight that are are damaging the bridges. So if we have less of that, then we don't have to spend as much on investment rehabilitating the bridges, and of course then discouraging them, you know, from doing the
0: damage they do. Are, are we having enough um, inspection? I'm sitting here in Providence. You know, I teach at Boston University, so I have to commute. But we moved down during COVID to Providence, to a lovely uh, 304-year-old house built five years after Louis the Fourteenth died. So- <laughs> It's really a cool little house. Um, and, uh, there's all these people commuting from, uh, the, from basically, uh, the East from Massachusetts, uh, they're, they're traveling West to Providence and there's a bridge, uh, over the Providence river, which half of which just was shut down because there were bolts that snapped. Uh, and I'm wondering whether, you know, how this can happen that, um, uh, and, of course, it's causing huge kinds of problems. Uh, it destroyed lots of uh, business during Christmas. People were not able to come into town and go to the restaurants and go shopping in Providence because there were hour-long. I think some, some people were commuting for four hours each way. Uh, when this first started, they've, they found some uh, alternative routes. But basically, it's, very, it's, a, it's a big mess and it's going to take a while. Uh, how is it that this doesn't get figured out like you know, ahead of time. I, I agree that uh, if we had prevented uh, heavy trucks uh, years before uh, using with their overuse of the uh, of that bridge, we wouldn't be in this boat. But uh, how is the what, on the inspection side? Is are these things just not uh, discernible in advance, or should the bolts be replaced periodically? I mean, going back to the Max 737, right? That just uh, uh, where a door just, uh, t- you know, fell right out of the sky. And fortunately, nobody died out of that Alaskan airline. But now Alaskan Alaska airline is pretty much out of business for quite a while until people basically, you know, replace, until Boeing fixes these doors in a way that's uh, quite permanent and uh, people are confident again to get on those on those planes. Yeah, so I think you
1: actually... Uh you put your finger on it. You may not realize it, but you did. There's a big difference between Alaska airlines and the Rhode Island department of transportation. <laughs> mm-hmm. right. One is the public sector? One is the private sector? Um, you know, generally airline safety in this country is amazingly safe. You know, we have not had a major commercial crash of a, you know, a major carrier, you know, for more than a decade now, uh, so you know things are safe, but at the same time, and, to the, and the obvious reason is they have an incentive to be safe. If there's a problem, there are consequences for the private sector, and they know it. And so Alaska's feeling it, and Boeing's going to feel it, and United is feeling it. So you know this is a hard problem. They have policies uh, in their companies about checking things and safety inspections and all that sort of stuff, but. You know, they're not perfect, they make mistakes. Uh, and when they do, they pay the consequences and they're not gonna make this mistake again. Public sector is not the, It's not the same. You know, who's really gonna bear the mistake when all of a sudden someone discovers that a bridge has got some bolts uh, loose on, a, on particular sections and it's gonna delay traffic? Well, who, who are the people gonna scream at and say, you know, fire them or give me money for all the time I have in computing or commuting. No one, I mean, the public sector will say, we're doing the best we can. We're gonna check this, Uh, we're gonna close it and we'll get back to you. And so, you know, that is one fundamental issue also about transportation. You know, I'm mentioning sort of an engineering mentality. There's also a very significant role of the public sector. Who does not have the same incentives for efficiency as the private sector, And there is a big part of your problem.
2: Question: How financially secure do you feel? Do you have enough money to retire? How much is enough? And if you don't have enough, how can you possibly find that money before you retire? Tough questions. One smart answer: Maxify. Maxify is the powerful online planning tool that takes the guesswork out of retirement. Maxify compares your assets against your fixed expenses to calculate how much you can safely spend every year for the rest of your life. And it shows you safe ways to find more money. Developed by Boston University economist Lawrence Kotlikoff, Maxify makes a complicated problem like retirement planning simple. Maxify. Powerful, accurate, easy to use. Want some peace of mind? Make the smart choice. Maxify. Visit Maxify.com today to start planning. That's Maxify with an I. M-A-X-I-F-I. Maxify.com.
0: So I guess there are economic solutions for basically privatizing bridges or highways, or at least the maintenance of bridges and highways, uh, such that um, if a company could, would stand to lose their contract uh, or pay penalties if uh, something like this happened, is that Kind of what do you have in mind?
1: Yeah, I mean that's that that's sort of in general, and this is sort of uh what we'll talk about a bit about my book that I want, want to go is getting a greater role for the private sector in doing these things where obviously we can also have competition. Now highways are are probably the last on this list because there are concerns with how we would design you know a private highway system where we can compete, but you know that that's certainly something that that's increasingly motivated. When we have problems with the system in terms of its repair and just an inability to deal with basic issues such as congestion, then okay. it comes up. You know, couldn't the private sector handle this?
0: Right. So let's turn to the issue of um, expenditures in as a share of GDP. If we if we think about infrastructure in the post-war uh, you know, once the highways, once the big investments were made, so if we look at last maybe 20 years, uh, do these two new bills, the uh, infrastructure bill that was passed under President Biden, the IRA bill, uh, the uh, Inflation Reduction Act, and these are bi- bipartisan bills, which not easy to m- make happen these days and such as divided Congress, uh, but do they really add Materially to the ratio of infrastructure spending to GDP, or are they just replacing spending that uh, came to an end? Uh, was this whole thing a, a hoax? All right, the American public. Yeah.
1: All right. Let me continue with my contrarian perspective. You know, the dependent variable should not be infrastructure spending divided by GDP. That is, I know. No, you know, and I'm not blaming you. No, this is again a particular perspective. That now this time I, econo- uh, economists got to take a little hit here. You know this is something that was very big in the macro and public economics literature. All right, but think about it. All right, the way the bills work, and this is the the way the country was willing to do this is the money has to be doled out across the country. It's not efficiently provided spatially to the areas with the biggest congestion or pavement damage or whatever. So everybody has to get in on it. So, you know, intuitively you can see well, just cuz I, you know, give North Dakota, Wyoming, Alaska, you name it, you know, billions of dollars, you know, it's hard for me to say that I'm really doing a lot to improve our transportation system. And when people sort of say, "Oh, we can get a real great payoff in productivity as as they did from increasing spending, you know, then you ask, okay, what exactly is the mechanism that you're gonna really increase spending by paving over Montana, right? Or productivity by paving over Montana. So intuitively you can sort of see that has been a problem in and of itself. The issue is what is efficient spending, right? And there that takes us back to cost benefit analysis. And then it takes us back further before we do efficient spending, we got to get the prices right. So all of this goes back to the, the the same theme that I'm saying is key for transportation economics. Don't look at outright expenditures. That's the wrong dependent variable. The right dependent variable is economic welfare, right? That's what we want to maximize.
0: Okay, so, so just tell me, just for my own yeah. interest, I realize that this might be miss, you know, a bad measure, not a. A bad thing to know that infrastructure spending as a share of GDP is higher than it was in the past, but is it higher uh, under these new bills as a share of GDP? It'll increase
1: it, but it's not. My my understanding is actually the federal government has cut back in its contributions. And, you know, you have spending at other levels, too, state and local spending. So they're going to have to sort of, you know, make up the slack, if you will.
0: So that Um, might actually go in the direction of what you're saying, which is that If Montana realizes that just uh, putting another highway through Montana that nobody drives on is not the best way, use of funds, versus you know spending them on pre-K education, right? Spend the money on pre-K education. Now, if, if they can get the
1: federal government, don't get the wrong idea. If they can get the federal government to give them money to pave over a highway that no one uses, they're not going to say no, don't do it. You know, because usually those are earmarked for that purpose. They'll take it. Now, it won't do much but they're not going to turn it down. But if the federal government says, no, you've got to spend your money, raise money, taxes or whatever, and spend it on highways, um, they'll say, maybe not. Maybe we don't want to do that. And think of other things.
0: So in these new bills, so now let's talk about kind of the way these bills were structured. Is there anything really uh, importantly new about how they were structured uh, such that we can... um, you know, think that the there'll the be more efficient use of these dollars uh, down, down the road, uh, or was it kind of same old, same old?
1: Same old, same old. I
0: mean, if, if
1: there was a change, then it would have been, quote, prudent for the administration to announce, we're going to do things differently. And here's how people have done it in the past and why that's inefficient. Here's how we're going to do things to make things more efficient. But that's not what was done. It's basically still about, let's provide dollars, uh, maybe more than than we had in the past under the guise of you know stimulating the economy. That's in one part of the bill. And then a different part is, okay, let us now, again, raising the question of what the public sector is doing getting involved in this to pro- try to promote the adoption of electric vehicles. That's another chunk of money that that that's being provided through through the bills. But in in the infrastructure part, there was one thing that was new and that buried in the bill was a program to actually test the kind of pricing I'm talking about. So there there was a sort of codicil, if you want to put it that way.
0: The vehicle uh miles having a, a what is
1: known as a VMT, vehicle miles travel tax, just right. to test it. And that's exactly the kind of tax we should have. And interestingly, the states are doing that. The states are the ones who are exploring uh, that tax, but this would be the federal government doing a similar thing. But as far as I know, that hasn't gone
0: anywhere, but at least
1: they mentioned it, which is something that had not been ever mentioned before.
0: The idea is if your truck, if this particular truck uh, travels twice the amount of miles in a given year than that truck, uh, and the weight is also, let's say adjusted for weight, uh, they're going to pay twice as much in uh, whatever highway fees for travel, for driving, uh, so the, the
1: broader idea is this, there are a number of externalities that automobile truck travel costs. And the idea is to charge people, for their contribution to those externalities. So one of them is congestion. One of them is pollution. One of them is pavement damage. One of them is fuel consumption. So the idea is to have a tax per mile, but is ideally adjusted to account more precisely for all those externalities and then discourage people either traveling at peak periods if it's the congestion part from using trucks that cause great damage and let me be clear quickly clear on that it's axle weight so it's actually the real killers out there are cement trucks with two axles in other words the axles are good in the sense they balance out the load so there's less pressure on the road cracking it all right so it's it's good in some ways to have more axles even out the load. So the idea would be to have a tax that encourage truckers to put on more axles so they don't damage the road so much. And pollution, same thing. So with modern technology, you know, we can actually set such things and monitor vehicles. People scream about privacy, but it's sort of hypocritical. You know, in, in a world of iPhones, we know where you are and where you live. So don't worry about that anymore. <laughs> we'll find you if we need to. So and so we can, we can, sorry? Is California trying this out? Is that part of what? Uh, Very interested. I mean, there they're, they're are they're, they're a number of states, as you might expect, more on the east and west uh, than other parts of the country that are exploring testing this. Oregon was the leader, if you will. I think they did one of the first ones right. and had people actually participate. But you know, there's sort of growing interest in, in doing this kind of thing as a, an efficient way to, to so raise on, the, on, the,
0: on that the part of the bills, you say, basically, it's uh, same old, same old, except that there's uh, this uh, uh, vehicle mileage uh, adjustment uh, tax option. Uh, no, 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 just a,
1: a, a, a money to experiment. They're not even committing uh, to anything.
0: Experiment, OK. So yeah, have- just even sort of look into it
1: look into it, think yeah, about that
0: that. That, that. that cool provision. Yeah. Uh, but it's a small part of the whole thing. Uh, right. Oh, very sweet. So. Then we also have some focus on electric vehicles. And I guess we're talking here about charging stations. And, well, both.
1: S- certainly subsidies yep. still exist. So we want to continue to have the high subsidies for EVs provided, remember, there are no components in the vehicle from China. You you're not not—you're not going to qualify if you've got an EV that's got uh, components from China. Other than that, you're fine. So between, and remember, the states are doing this too. So you can get a federal subsidy and a state subsidy uh, to purchase an EV. So that's one part of it. And then the other part is they want to have money funded, billions of dollars, to build a network of charging stations. Now, again, back to the theme. You know, one is aware hopefully that the private sector is also construct, constructing charging stations. They have, a, they have obviously huge interest in doing this. I mean, think about it. I mean, you know, the gas companies know that the future is not with gas, right? They know that, where are they gonna be? I think they might wanna be with electric and they themselves have charging stations. Places like Starbucks think, hey, that would be good. Let's have some charging stations. So people come use this. Us, they can also park their car, get the thing charged up, have some coffee, and then go out and
0: do. So how it. much has this happened? Well, first of all, I've heard reports that not a single charging station has been erected by the federal government under this, or the or the states under the uh, these new bills. Not a single one in, in like a year and a half, two years since it's they've been passed. I have a plug-in hybrid uh, with my wife and. I can't find any place to plug it in. I go to a local gas station. I don't see the chargers there. Um, and then the ones I, I guess there's, there's been one year, my kind of WeWork's office down here in Providence, which um, took forever to charge and cost a, an arm and a leg. Uh, it just doesn't seem like things are happening. And when, then we also, I just read, I think yesterday that Hertz rental car was going to try and sell something like 200,000, maybe I got this wrong, Teslas uh, in order to uh, get the money to buy uh, gas combustion engine cars because people did not want to rent uh, Teslas as they, as they had expected, I guess, because of the charging issues. But Tesla of course has a network of charging stations where you can charge pretty quickly. So we're, what's the kind of charging story here? In the in the are we about to see this all come on board, uh, or is the whole thing been a disaster?
1: Um, it it's been it's totally misguided. I mean, the fundamental question that should have been asked by the government is what's the market failure that requires us to intervene in spurring the adoption of electric vehicles and as part of that building charging stations. What's the failure? And and this this is the new part that I'm trying to push. What are the chances that whatever market failure there is, the government failure, that is our inability to implement a good policy will lead to costs that are greater than the market failure, right? That really is now the way we've got to think about public policy which we have not been thinking about. So if you start with that framework, you, you realize, look, the market is evolving slowly on the private sector side. The companies know that. You know what, the, sh- the share may be about 9% now of new vehicles or electric vehicles with Tesla leading the way. Um, you know, the largest sellers of EVs in the world are are, kept out of our market, that is Chinese, with what is known as the BYD, build your dreams electric vehicle, you can't buy that here. Um, So, you know, the private sector is doing things, but it's slow and and probably appropriate. You know, for the most part, you know, EVs have been purchased by more affluent people on the coasts, and as you say, There are chargers, certainly, if you're going to get Teslas, that they can get. And a lot of people, which I assume this is what you do, charge their vehicle at home. Yes. Uh So, you know, if you drive around Silicon Valley, you look for charging stations, you'll see them, but nobody's using them because they're charging their vehicles all at home. (laughs) That's what a lot of them do. So anyway, I mean, the private sector is moving along. Not fast, but probably appropriate, given consumer interest in this. And the same thing with probably the evolution of charging stations.
0: Well, isn't it kind of chicken and egg if we had charging, if if every gas station was required, let's say, and compensated and told, you have to have a charging station uh, uh, implemented uh, by this date in a year of... couldn't that just revolutionize the entire situation and, and make everybody keen on buying electric cars right and make that nine percent go up to 25 percent overnight. So you
1: know this is a what you, you're
0: describing is a
1: classic problem in transportation where you in many ways have to commit your capacity before you really know demand. Okay. So airlines are classic right you know The airlines don't know exactly how many people are going to be out there when they set their schedules, right? They have to commit and say, you know, we're going to offer these many flights a week to these destinations and we're going to use these planes. And, you know, demand is yet to materialize, Right. right? And so then they iterate and sometimes flights are moved around and all this kind of stuff. But they have to solve this problem. That's what I'm getting at. And this is the same thing you know, they have to worry about what kind of capacity in terms of charging capacity do we Mm -hmm. want to provide to interact with purchase and use of electric vehicles. And that's just a problem they've got to solve. That's what I'm saying, is they've got to do that. And so my point is, do you think the government can solve this better? Right. That's the issue.
2: Want more money, less risk, and a better life? Buy Money Magic, a new book by Lawrence Kotlikoff, Boston University economist, personal finance expert, and best-selling author. Whether it's education, career, marriage, housing, investing, retirement, social security, IRA, or 401k decisions, Money Magic delivers scores of secrets to raise your living standard. Financial journalist Jane Bryant Quinn says, Money Magic is a must-read. Nobel laureate George Akerlof says Money Magic is quite probably the best financial advice book ever written financial guru john malden says you'll love this amazing book it's full of wit wisdom and startling paths to a better financial life and columnist scott burns calls money magic a funny brilliant read offering wildly powerful unconventional choices that can literally change your life get lawrence kotlikoff's money magic today at amazon barnes and noble and independent booksellers
0: well i want yeah, you know, but we look around at the private sector and they're not solving it on their own. Maybe they're waiting for the government. Maybe that's part of the problem. Remember, the
1: government's intervening. I mean, they have no, in some sense, the private sector would say, well, why don't we spend our money on this? If they've got $5 billion in new legislation to
0: build charging stations, let them do it. So why hasn't, okay, so a couple of questions. First, yeah. why hasn't it happened so far? You know, they've got the money. Why haven't we seen any charging stations being installed? Is this uh, just incompetence at the Department of Transportation or where where is it coming from?
1: Well, you've got two ends of it, right? You've got the spending end, right? Somebody said, let's start writing checks. But Mm -hmm. then it's not clear to me that along with the quote, spending end, there was the implementation end where it was clear, oh, here's how we're going to do it. And here's the process that we're going to use. Remember, this is going to be not charging stations in DC, that they completely control, right? These will be charging stations throughout the country. So you've got to then get the states involved. Well, already some states said, we don't want the money. You know, we don't want to be setting up all these charging stations. We need land for that. We have, you know, we have enough for quote, our purposes, so on and so forth. Again, it's a coordination problem that is here. And again, no one's working on it. And it's again not even clear. That
0: there's any point to doing it. it... Okay, so here from the state's perspective. This okay. This brings me on a second question, which is, uh, let's say uh, you were dictator for um, on on this issue, right? uh, You know, uh, now you're fully in charge of federal EV policy, even state EV policy, and private. You you can basically build a uh, EV charging station anywhere you want uh, at any time, do it overnight, you can do it slowly. What would the world look like a year from now if Cliff Winston was in charge? Well, wait.
1: if I'm in charge, I'm gonna provide incentives for people to get electric vehicles by putting in a VMT tax with a nice hefty emissions charge to it, right? That's what we wanna do. In other words, again, People lose track of what the problem is we're trying to solve.
0: Uh, okay, so you're saying that there's no the
1: problem is pollution, right? Emissions, no, climate no, no.
0: change, all I that. that. I got that's it. what we want to
1: solve. I'm with you hundred percent. And we need to set prices on what the social costs of these are.
0: You gotta focus And then
1: you that. do that, and then people say, wait a minute, I think I'd like to reduce my emissions payment. When I use my car,
0: ah, I can use an electric vehicle and I can cut it down substantially. That's so, the idea. So give people the incentive to, um, to, to. but is there some, uh, you know, okay. Let's say we had the right um, tax and incentive uh, uh, system in place. You would put that in place uh, day right. one. Now day two, is there some uh, uh, public goods nature to, uh, to, to, this issue of, uh, charging stations that we need to have, uh, uh, you know, is there some externality associated with, uh, uh, building a charging station, positive externality that, uh, uh, the private sector would not necessarily capture or do you not see anything like that? Do you think that, uh, the private sector with the right, uh, let's say tax per, uh, let's say carbon tax if you like let's think about it that way sure carbon tax uh, on all uses of carbon anything that was going to emit carbon we had it everything properly priced would the uh 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 the charging stations take care of themselves properly or do you see that there's an extra role for government intervention here that, that there needs to be a, additional subsidies for uh or direct installation by the government of charging stations. No, I don't see. You don't see any, anything.
1: Any role for the government in this? Now, again, let me go back to what I said. And let me I'm just not guarantee it. that the private sector will develop a fully efficient charging station network. Again, they'll touch the waters and they'll try to see how should we evolve both capacity is with demand efficiently. But there'll probably be mistakes. But whatever mistakes there are trying to say that the public sector is going to come in and do better and not have a lot of inefficiencies like we've seen already, we have no idea what they're doing is crazy. I mean, this is just not the kind of thing they should do. Now, we have seen this again in other infrastructure. That is, if you look at how we fund the highway system, if you look at how we fund the airport system, there's a lot of money but it's not doled out efficiently. As I said, the money is not directed to where the social costs are highest, right? You're still getting states that have very little congestion getting a lot of money. You're getting airports that have very little traffic getting a lot of money. There's just a huge amount of waste. And that is exactly the kind of problem with having the government involved in really a public infrastructure uh, project because they're gonna waste a lot of money. And that's something that, you know, ideally we're gonna cut back on that because there's opportunity cost of this money.
0: Okay, so so I wanna remind everybody that uh, this is uh, Cliff Winston, uh, I think our top infrastructure economist in, in the country. And, uh, you know, he, he's at the Brookings Institution. He may sound like he's right up center, but. He's not political as I've known Cliff for a long time. Yeah. He's just common sense. What economics brings to the table. We have to remember we have 535 members of Congress. Not a single one has a PhD in economics. Uh, so a couple. I want to move quickly to your uh, book, your new book, right? It's called "Revitalizing America's." Uh, let's see. It's revitalizing a nation. Native- Competition and Innovation in the U.S. Transportation System. It's a Brookings Institution press book. It's available, I presume, on Amazon. So let me just repeat, Revitalizing a Nation, Competition and Innovation in the U.S. Transportation System. So, Cliff, tell us, um, let's say that uh, either President uh, Biden is reelected or Nikki Haley is uh, becomes president. <laughs> and you become secretary of transportation. Uh, Well, tell us about your book in the context of of also this fantasy of your actually having the ability to implement things. Uh, But let's tell people about the book, first of all.
1: Let me me start though, again, with some motivation. I think this is often the the big problem in so many policy discussions, and, and even especially involving transportation. What are we trying to do? Right. Before I start talking about solutions and what we're trying to analyze, what is the big picture question? Okay. Transportation involves trying to minimize, if not reduce, what we call the full cost of distance. All right. The fact that we're not living in caves close together, right, generates costs and benefits. Now, the cost of distance is obviously out-of-pocket costs. You wanna go from Providence to Boston, gotta spend your money on a mode to get there, but that's only one cost. Then you have to put your time. Mm-hmm. You're putting your time into that trip and there's often a distribution of time. You're not quite sure how long it's gonna take. That's another cost, okay? And if you're a shipper, you're tying up your capital and you're putting it on a truck or train or whatever. And so you don't have your goods where they can be most right. ideally used and so on and so forth, that's your cost. And then of course, safety, things happen and route. So that's it, You know, this is the full cost of distance. Now this is a huge item, this is a big ticket item, but this is not something people talk about generally when they talk about the big picture of the economy that we want to minimize the full cost of distance and transportation is obviously the tool in which we do that. And in that sense, transportation is probably the most unappreciated input in economics. You know, people say, well, you don't know, we tend to think of producing things. You have capital, labor, so on and so forth. But you don't get any of that without transportation. Now, people will say, yes, but for transportation, you need capital and labor. True. But The reverse is still true. So, you know, we start off with this big picture that transportation conceptually plays a fundamental role in any economy because it is used to address some really huge costs, time costs, out-of-pocket costs, safety costs. All right. So the name of the game then is, okay, how can we develop a transportation system that can most efficiently address this problem? Now, there are two parts to this. First, let's think about the system, the transportation system, and that transportation system as well. Urban transportation we tend to divide it, you know, geographically or spatially, and inter uh, er, sorry, urban passenger and freight, intercity passenger, and then intercity freight. So those are sort of the the components of it. Um, it may not be that forever. I mean, this may be historical coincidence that, that that's how we've thought about it but as the world evolves it might be different but for now that's that's how it is so we start with the system looking inward which is what transportation people have d- done and tr- think about okay what are the various components where are their strengths where are their weaknesses now the second part which i only touch on in the book the first part really deal uh, the book really deals with this first part the transportation system its components, its strengths, its weaknesses, how we can make things better, where do we learn, how we can make things better, so on and so forth. The second then is the bigger picture Okay, Okay, now that we've done this, how does this affect the broader economy? All right, back to what I'm saying, the full cost of distance. So you can think in many ways of transportation as critical to macroeconomic policy because it affects all the sectors you improve the components of the system, they're gonna have spillover effects. Improving labor, improving labor, trade, agglomeration economies, industrial competition, you name it, because why? They all involve the full cost of distance. All right, so those are the big picture issues, and I'm sort of starting with the first one, my book,
0: analyzing
1: this transportation system, focusing on where, things need to be improved, where things have been improved, so we can learn from history, and then touching a little bit on these broader issues and moving eventually in another book to transportation and the whole economy. But we'll get to that, hopefully, (laughs) if I don't ever get COVID, which I never have gotten.
2: Want more money, less risk, and a better life? Buy Money Magic, a new book by Lawrence Kotlikoff, Boston University economist, personal finance expert, and best-selling author. Whether it's education, career, marriage, housing, investing, retirement, social security, IRA, or 401k decisions, Money Magic delivers scores of secrets to raise your living standard. Financial journalist Jane Bryant Quinn says, Money Magic is a must-read. Nobel laureate George Akerlof says Money Magic is quite probably the best financial advice book ever written. Financial guru John Malden says you'll love this amazing book. It's full of wit, wisdom, and startling paths to a better financial life. And columnist Scott Burns calls Money Magic a funny, brilliant read, offering wildly powerful, unconventional choices that can literally change your life. Get Lawrence Kotlikoff's Money Magic today at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and independent booksellers.
0: <laughs> Bless you. Good, good uh if you do get the paxlovid because i think it, i think it's uh worth it uh paxlovid the um
1: so i'm told <laughs> yeah.
0: the i guess the question would another can i, I connected question would be is there any country that's getting this right no in a word no we don't have
1: to look elsewhere we
0: know how to do it we can do it right so now concretely your secretary of Tran- transportation right. under the next administration and you have a, an agreeable Congress uh, and an agreeable president right. uh, and you want to, you're in charge. Right. So what What would you do? What are the 10 things you do? All right. So the key, and this
1: is what my book is
0: about, is
1: we have had improvements in transportation through two mode, two ways, competition and innovation. All right. That's what we need to stimulate, encourage, spur, what have you. That will help the system. So obviously competition was spurred by deregulation. So that's the big success story. Um, It has been depressing to see these horrible op-eds about the problems with airlines and that we ought to re-regulate. It's scary that it's so hard to sort of get people to realize this is a success story and Congress should be happy and take pride in what they did let yet there's one problem you know a problem comes up and people start screaming we need to re-regulate no so there are other areas though where we can stimulate competition okay so for example we do not allow foreign airlines to serve domestic routes we allow foreign car companies from let's say germany and japan to produce cars and sell them in the in the domestic united states however We don't allow British Airways to serve Providence to Boston or Boston to Chicago, right? So that's one thing right there. How about getting some new competition, which to me is a a pure winner for for travelers, that's for sure. Obviously the, the airlines may not like it initially, but move toward global deregulation, right? Which is again, another unappreciated benefit. You know, many people travel internationally, you go to Europe and you wanna go, let's say, Pisa, Italy, you fly to Rome, then you got a six hour connection to get to Pisa, you gotta use a different airline. We could develop with global deregulation seamless travel where you have an airline saying, look, we want to provide the entire service. We wanna take you to Rome. We wanna hook you up with our smaller carriers and take you to Pisa on us and not make you wait six hours in an airport. That's just an idea of what can happen, but there's a lot more, all right? In the case of infrastructure, why does Atlanta have one airport? It's the They have the busiest airport in the country, but there's only one. You know, Why is it where I live? There are three airports, which is much smaller, and Atlanta has one. Why isn't there private airport competition? We could get that. It's crazy to think we couldn't. And there are many other parts of this country where there's just monopoly airports. Let's look at our port system. Our port system is actually evaluated by the World Bank global uh, comparison. We're always at the bottom. That is one area where you can at least look to other countries and say, look, their ports are open 24/7. They use more modern technology to automation and what have you uh, to help. This is critical to the supply you know, the issue on the uh, uh, supply network and supply issues, right? These public ports, and of course, the, the, you got longshore, what do I call them? Longshore people. <laughs> Not longshore anymore. Longshore people. They're probably women who work there. And they get paid a fortune. That's a very lucrative job. You know, good six figures with a lot of benefits, right? It's very costly. You know, they're like the old days of the $300,000 airline pilot or more, all right? They can compete. Why can't we have private ports and let them compete? So there's all of these areas that we talk about in the book where we can have competition. Now, the other part, well, let me stop there and then I'll turn over to innovation if you want to chat
0: a little bit about the competition part of it. Well, I mean, is the big impediment here the state regulators or local? Oh, you bet, or it's public ownership. They don't
1: want to give it up. I mean, there's a lot of power when you, when the government owns something, they're not gonna say, well, okay, yeah, we'll give this up. We'll give airports up, right? The local authorities don't want to do that. They get money, they get power, whatever.
0: They they take under a Republican democratic administrations. It's not really a matter of party. It's a matter of power. Uh, You've got local politicians. They just, this is just something they want to be in control of so they can get some rents of some sort. Maybe they can give. Sure. I mean, the
1: origin of this was the Depression. This happened during the 30s. That Aviation was just getting off the ground in this country. The Depression hits. There were airports. They were private. They had huge financial problems. Government came in. Could have bailed them out, tried to get them through it. They didn't. They said, we're going to take them over. Same thing I might add, and we'll get to this in a bit, occurred in transit. You know, transit used to be all private both trains and buses, obviously when the car came along, they started having financial problems, you know, coupled with certain restrictions, by the way, in terms of regulations on their operations, government, local government could have helped them out. No, they didn't. They said, we're going to take you over and you're failing and goodbye. So, you know, this is something that we've seen before. The problem is these should be thought about as experiments okay, let's try and see if the public sector can do better when the finance, uh, when the private sector has serious financial problems. We've learned they can't, they can't. I mean, some of these things have got to the point, believe it or not, where they really are socially undesirable. That is, if you look at the magnitude of the subsidies and you compare them with quote, the social benefits from the users, even accounting for things like, you know, reducing congestion from cars, it's still negative. And that's obviously something people won't look at, but that that is that really is the truth. So what so, you're saying? It... So this is the problem. You know, we do have this sort of, you know, very stuck system where public sector is involved, and we continue to have these inefficiencies and lack of competition. But you know, as we talk about in the book, there really are opportunities for competition to improve. So I had, I
0: had another guest on. Peter Fox Penner just wrote a book uh, uh Let's see. Um it's it's called uh, uh I'm, I'm I'm blanking on the uh, title it's a uh, power after no it's called power after carbon anyway he talks about the potential for um for green technologies to power the the country and he spends a lot of time talking about the um new uh green grid that we need uh grid 2.0 if you like to to Transport electricity that we can't use the old grid uh, in order to fulfill this kind of uh, ambition, but he says this is this is he's he's quite pessimistic because of the local and state regulatory authorities that are blocking building a uh, a new power line from wind turbines in Texas to New York City. That's right. You know he points out that you could put on. Uh solar panels on all, every building in Boston, you still wouldn't come up with more than maybe a third of the energy needs. You really need to bring it in uh, so do you see anything in in any of these bills that's actually going to improve the grid
1: okay, so th- this then is the second topic this is innovation right? lots of innovation topic. and technological change well there's there we know there is nothing worse. For innovation and technological change than the government getting involved in this you know they have they're driven by lawyers there are rules there are red tape there are certain things we've got to do you know we don't like to take risks we don't like to experiment so you know this is the mindset and who's writing a lot of these bills or lawyers um and again so you, you hear me being critical of other disciplines and i have reason to be I mean, both engineers spend money like crazy and lawyers write regulations like crazy. And no one steps back and asks, what are we trying to solve? How can we solve this in the most efficient, effective way possible? And are the things that we've been doing the right way to do them? Or can we say, look, you know, there may be a better way to do this. So the, the bills are not gonna all of a sudden change, step back and say, oh, we really ought to innovate Differently, which means, by the way, it's not a great idea to have the government involved doing this. No, they'll build on whatever we have before, you know, use good words, but still it's the same problem. The private sector innovates. The public sector does not innovate. The private sector needs incentives and opportunities. Now this is critical, critical part of my book because the big innovation coming up on transportation is automation, autonomy. You know, autonomous vehicles are a game changer it is absolutely incredible that the biden administration has put at least some emphasis and attention on electric vehicles and zero on autonomous vehicles when autonomous vehicles especially for a democratic administration are so important because they can improve mobility for old people young people you know infirmed people these are the kinds of things that Democrats should care about. Huge ways of raising the quality of life for these people, right? Nothing, nothing is said. There's just cynicism. There's attacks every time, you know, GM had a problem. They're, they're suspicious of Waymo. No one sort of saying just how important all of this is and what he can do. And again, back to my earlier point, the full cost of distance what do you think autonomy can do for reducing the full cost of distance? Out-of-pocket cost? boom. You don't have a driver anymore. Probably not even insurance, right? You'll get there quicker, less congestion, more reliability, and, of
0: course, safety. This is it, right here. What's your, what's your thinking on the grid? Look, We're going to have to probably... End so, this. anyway, yeah, I mean, the grid is the same thing. I mean, there's no one
1: with a vision. That's really what it is. There's no one with a vision of what are the most important things, right? Where we need to have the capacity, particularly on the electric and autonomous side, that's where we're gonna need it, right? Electric vehicles are gonna need this, right. you know, all this kind of stuff. Wing too, I mean, th- there, there are problems with, with all these alternative energy sources, but there's no vision of wh- of where to do this. And I don't think the firms themselves, especially in this area are sufficiently established to sort of say, okay, Here's, you know, here's exactly how we do it. Let us take it over. It's not like with airlines. This is sort of the big joke. You know, you're reading with the Boeing business that, you know, now FAA and NTSB are looking into it. This is a joke. They don't know anything. Boeing will tell FAA and NTSB how their aircraft works, what went wrong. FAA and NTSB will repeat this and make it look like they had some influence on improving safety, okay? That's what they're going to say, and that's how it works publicly, but it's not how it works. Boeing knows what their problems are. What we need is private sector expertise to tell the government, look, this is how we need to do things to uh, improve the grid and so on and so forth. Keep out of the way other than write checks if we need any. Other than that, you've done your
0: job. I got it. So well, this is. Listen, uh, I learned more listening to you than to any uh, transportation sec- uh, secretary in in, uh, in in my lifetime, to tell you the truth. Just in, a, in an hour, and I really want to appreciate and I you're coming. Or, so thank you for for coming. And uh, I'm hoping that uh, whoever is elected the next president will choose you for a transportation secretary. Have you had any contact with the, any of the uh, political parties or candidates?
1: (laughs) I'm not quite sure that that I'm the kind of personality type they're looking for. Uh, You know, I think there are people who are well suited for government. to be honest with you, I'm not even well suited for an economics department. I'm better off by myself.
0: (laughs) Uh, You know, actually, I think what we need is a, a government of technocrats. At this point, we have we've seen the politicians and the lawyers yeah. A mess of, oh, yeah. sort of things. Uh, you know, if you look at Social Security, it has twelve benefits. I'll just give you an analogy here. Twelve benefits, twenty seven hundred twenty eight rules in its handbook. That's the basic rules about the twelve benefits. Then there's there's twenty thousand plus pages uh, if you print it out of the program operating manual system about the twenty seven hundred and twenty eight rules about the twelve benefits. And then there's a supplemental program operating manual system, which you can't even access publicly about the, about the 20,000 pages, about the 2,720 rules about the 12 benefits. New Zealand has one rule. It is you reach 65, you get a check. It's the same check for everybody done deal. It's not this vast bureaucracy. Social security has something like 60,000 employees and uh 2000 people are being, according to Social Security, called back every year, they finally revealed this, because they're, they're, Social Security is claiming that they've been overpaying them potentially for decades. We've seen clawbacks that go back to 45 years. Uh, (laughs) So they can't shoot remotely straight. And it's all all these rules were all written by lawyers. Oh yeah, So Shakespeare had it right: first right. shoot the lawyers, uh, and then maybe shoot uh, the politicians. Uh, mm-hmm. But anyway, leave and me. if we
1: talk about privatizing Social Security, you know, take their heads off.
0: <laughs> exactly. Yeah. The um, anyway, uh, great to have you. Okay. Uh, Good to with talk with you. Us, and uh, I'm hoping that one of these candidates will see this podcast and grab you as uh, their their transportation person because it's, it's, it's great to have somebody speak frankly about what the heck's going on and what we really need. So thanks again. Great. Enjoyed Bye.
1: talking with you. Good seeing you again.